Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, I'm Alec Kesu uh, with the New Books Network. Uh, Dr. Paul Steinberg, clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia, returns to New Book Network to discuss his latest book, Applying Psychoanalytic Thought to Contemporary Mental Health Practice, published by Rutledge in 2021. In this latest work, a sister publication to his prior psychoanalysis in medicine, Dr. Steinberg describes the potential for psychoanalytic ideas and practice to be applied to a variety of mental health care contexts, including group therapy and partial hospitalization programs. He writes about how psychoanalysis has and how it can continue to reinvent itself on an ongoing basis in parallel with evolving theory and technology. Through clinical vignettes, citation of psychoanalytic literature literature and direct analysis, Dr. Steinberg offers an approachable, engaging, and personal discourse on psychoanalysis in modern mental health practice. Dr. Steinberg, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Alec. Um, So let's start off uh, like like we did last time. Um, If you could just uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little about yourself. I'm a psychiatrist who eventually undertook psychoanalytic training relatively late in a career that involved working in many different psychiatric venues, including inpatient, outpatient, consultation liaison psychiatry, liaison to family medicine, emergency psychiatry, and a partial hospitalization program. I've always attempted to employ a psychoanalytically informed approach to understanding my patients wherever I met them. And how did you come to write this book? During my career, I wrote psychodynamically informed articles based on experiences in most of these clinical venues. In my first book, I complemented the medically oriented articles with what I learned over four decades of practice, culminating in my analytic training. In this book, I selected the psychodynamically and psychotherapeutically oriented articles and similarly tried to enhance them with what I have learned. Um, So... 
Can you tell us what, what does psychoanalysis have to offer for mental health care providers? Psychoanalysis, first and foremost, is the psychology of the unconscious. Provision of mental health care is enhanced when considerations of the patient's unconscious motivations are included in the attempts to understand their difficulties and manage them. A sense of understanding one's patient more profoundly both adds to the mental health care provider's confidence and security in dealing with the patient, whether or not a form of psychotherapy is employed. This usually is somehow conveyed to the patient, which the patient finds reassuring. It often is a very new experience for a patient to feel understood and heard in a way that will not occur if the mental health care provider's main focus is limited to the patient's symptoms and behavior. Understanding something about the patient's unconscious wishes, fears, aspirations, fantasies, and especially their unconscious templates for interpersonal interactions can inform the mental health care provider about the most productive way to approach the patient, lessening the chance of emotionally threatening the patient and enhancing the prospects of appealing to unconscious, healthier sides of the patient because they are more likely to have been identified or at least conceptualized as a possibility. The patient's unconscious templates for interpersonal interactions, the patterns with which they have learned to relate to others, based mainly on very early experiences with their primary caregivers, usually their parents, are especially important. Freud described this phenomenon as transference. This kind of understanding on the part of the healthcare provider can provide hope to a patient who may not have had much reason for hope based on what he consciously is aware of. In my opinion, the mental health care provider's attempt to understand the patient and to find healthier parts of the patient is conveyed unconsciously to the patient. In fact, much is conveyed unconsciously between patient and mental health care provider outside of the awareness of both, but nevertheless significantly affecting what happens between them. I would like to refer to healthcare providers and not restrict myself to mental health care providers, although they are the chief target audience for this book, because I believe what I am suggesting occurs in all patient healthcare provider relationships. However, it is more incumbent, in my opinion, for mental health care providers to take their patients' unconscious into consideration, as not doing so is more likely to undermine their work more directly and substantially than that of other healthcare providers. An important psychoanalytic principle that is part of the basis for how psychoanalysis can help can enhance psychotherapy is formulation. Formulation is the attempt to explain how the patient presenting to you got to be how she is and why she is presenting now. It includes biological factors such as genetic inheritance and social factors such as poverty and disastrous circumstances, such as living in a war zone. Psychodynamic formulation is the psychological part of the formulation that deals with the motivations for behavior outside of conscious awareness. These are based on unconscious templates we have, largely based on early experiences with caregivers, of what to expect from interpersonal interactions, and how we view ourselves and tend to experience others. Psychodynamic formulation is essential to creating a rational treatment plan for the mental health patient. Dr. Steinberg, for for learners or mental health care providers earlier in their careers, 
What guidance do you give for beginning to incorporate psychodynamic principles into their practice? Well, Alec, platitudes regarding the importance of completing a psychodynamic formulation for every patient seem more often to be honored in the breach than in the observance. Often, mental health professionals are never adequately instructed in the skill. Developing this skill is an ongoing process that should continue throughout one's training and one's entire professional life. Psychodynamic formulation is a demanding task involving clinical skills and some theoretical knowledge that we gain only slowly and gradually. However, this task is also one of the most intellectually stimulating aspects of mental health practice and offers significant benefits in terms of its application, both in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and general patient management. Developing skills in psychodynamic formulation involves the opportunity to apply theoretical models of psychopathology to one's entire patient population. Deficiencies in the basic clinical skill of history taking limit proficiency in psychodynamic formulation. The capacity to produce a formulation is limited to the extent to which one is able to gather historical data. The size and quality of the house the mason builds depends partly on the amount and quality of construction material available. A clinician's psychodynamic formulation can be no better than the historical data the clinician elicits, particularly regarding the individual's interpersonal relationships. Histories often do not include significant details about important relationships throughout the patient's life to enable clinicians to construct plausible psychodynamic hypotheses about their patients. My experience with trainees leads me to conclude that they often feel that deficiencies in theoretical knowledge limit them. Some trainees feel they can remedy this problem by reading more about psychoanalytic theory. Other trainees take a more passive approach, expecting time alone to provide what they feel is lacking in them. A third group give up, limiting their formulations to biological considerations. These observations arbitrarily divide trainees into groups. Most trainees show characteristics of more than one group. Trainees in the first group take a highly intellectual approach that may not help them understand better what is emotionally important to their patients. The theoretical knowledge they acquire remains undigested, a lump in their stomachs, bits of which they may regurgitate in an attempt to fit part of a theory to what they have observed in a patient. This phenomenon is most distressing when a trainee memorizes the bare bones of several psychodynamic theories, approaches, I'm sorry, and indiscriminately applies isolated aspects of, of them to a patient, of several theories to a patient, some of which may be incompatible with others. The resulting formulation ends up looking like the work of a modern artist who literally has thrown his paint onto the canvas. It may be a lively and stimulating production, but it is not a coherent organized representation of the clinician's picture of the patient. On the other hand, a careful history of the patient's relationships is more likely to permit the clinician to appreciate what is emotionally important to the patient, not only in terms of the content that the clinician elicits from the patient, but also because of the emotion the patient displays when discussing the important relationships. The clinician's understanding can be enhanced by considering the quality of the relationship between her and the patient as it evolves during the interview and of the emotions and fantasies the clinician experiences during the interview. None of this requires clinicians to be experts in psychoanalytic theory. It does require us to observe our patient astutely 
including our patients' reactions to us, our own experiences in the interview, and the interaction between us and our patient. Having elicited an adequate history, the clinician needs a theoretical approach to organize and make sense of the data. Much readable psychodynamic material is available to the clinician interested in erecting a theoretical skeleton on which to arrange the flesh of historical data. Some individual factors and clinicians can interfere with their willingness and capacity to elicit more complete and detailed histories from their patients, particularly histories that outline the quality of the patient's significant relationships. Our capacity and willingness to tolerate painful emotions associated with our own relational ups and downs is one (coughs) consideration. Clinicians need to elicit details that paint a picture of the patient's relationships. We need to ask patients for concrete examples to illustrate the generalizations patients often make about the relationships. We need to explore the patient's superficial and often defensive description of relationships, such as, my marriage is fine, I had a happy childhood, or my parents were great. One may deal with his defensiveness by acknowledging the positive aspects of the relationship, and then ask for examples. Please give me an example of what is fine in your marriage. This approach may result in examples being given that both reassure the patient and reduces the defensiveness. It also helps the clinician in her formulation as something is learned of protective factors. However, what a patient describes as positive in a relationship may not seem as positive to the interviewer. So something may be learned of the patient's interpersonal difficulties this way, in spite of the patient's conscious intention being to describe something positive. In addition, the manner in which the patient exhibits his defensiveness to the interviewer is another possible source of information regarding the patient's interpersonal difficulties. Other possible responses include patients becoming overtly defensive or demonstrating that they are unable to describe their relationships in detail which can lead to conclusions regarding the patient's difficulties with identity and thinking. Once the patient is allowed to describe positive aspects of the relationship in question, he may be less defensive in describing negative aspects of the relationship. The patient's defensiveness can be reduced further by the clinician indicating that negative aspects of a relationship are normal, such as there is no marriage without disagreements. What is important is how they are resolved. One of the things that I find uh, most uh, interesting to learn about in, in psychoanalytic theory is the idea of countertransference and um, enjoyed reading your uh, take on it. Can you, can you talk to us about what countertransference is um, and what the value of applying countertransference is to psychotherapy? The clinician's countertransference in the interview is also an important potential source of information. She may be aware of the patient's projecting self and object representations, unconscious images of himself and the other, onto the interviewer during the progress of the interview. For example, the patient may react to the interviewer as if she were treating him like one of his parents did, or the interviewer may feel an impulse to respond in that way. Signs of countertransference include uncustomary ways in which the clinician treats the patient, the clinician experiencing feelings that are not usual to her during the course of an interview, and the clinician experiencing impulses to treat the patient in a manner not characteristic of her. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For example, an overly narcissistic patient might behave in a condescending or superior manner and the clinician might feel angry or hurt and subsequently experience an impulse to either strike back at the patient or defer to the patient. In this situation, the patient is likely projecting a self-representation characterized by feelings of inferiority, weakness, and helplessness onto the clinician, while identifying with an internal object, an unconscious image of the other, characterized by feelings of superiority and power. A dependent patient may behave in an overtly submissive and passive fashion. This behavior may elicit either irritation or a more sympathetic, kindly parental reaction from the clinician, who might correspondingly experience an impulse to behave in an impatient manner or to treat the patient in a more gentle and supportive manner. Dependent patients appear to experience themselves as needy, hungry children and may project either an impatient, unaccepting object representation onto the clinician or the wished-for, kindly, supportive parental image. The clinician's reaction, of course, depends to a significant extent on her own personality structure and characteristic reactions to various types of individuals. The more aware a clinician is of her personal tendencies, the more successful she will be in separating out her contribution to her reactions to the patient. An overtly hostile or threatening patient may inspire fear in the clinician who might respond by becoming more timid and unassertive perhaps even giving up the initiative in the interview. Conversely, the clinician might respond in a similarly hostile manner. In this case, the patient is likely projecting her frightened self-representation into the clinician, who either responds by attempting to project the frightened self-representation back into the patient, or by accepting the projection and experiencing the patient as the threatening object representation that the patient identified with. One may also compare the self and object representations that seem to be expressed in the interview with the information about early important relationships one gathers in the history. Such a comparison can contribute important material to the psychodynamic formulation. Clinicians who are aware during the interview of what feelings and impulses a patient inspires in them are in a better position not only to use this information in constructing a formulation, but also in determining their conduct in the interview. The reaction of a clinician to a patient may inform them of the need for limit setting, confrontation, interpretation, clarification, or simple observation of what the clinician thinks is going on between her and the patient, an inquiry as to why the patient thinks this is happening and whether this represents a pattern for the patient in other relationships. Another concept that you uh, bring up in the book is and talk about is uh, projective interpretation, uh, especially in the context of group therapy. Can you tell us uh, about that concept and the value of it? Uh, The term projective identification is quite a mouthful, Alex, so I'd like to to, um, abbreviate it to PI from now on. 
PI is an unconscious mental mechanism of defense. It involves a group of fantasies and accompanying object relations, which are unconscious images one has of oneself and others in relation to different parts of oneself. And these are aimed at ridding the self of unwanted aspects of the self, the fantasized depositing of those unwanted parts or aspects into another person, and finally the recovery of a modified version of what was extruded. In contemporary understanding, this involves not just a fantasy of evacuating an unwanted part of the self into the other, but exerting pressure on the other to identify with the projection. So the person being projected into experiences himself as if the projection were part of him. That is, it's not just an intrapsychic and within within the mind of one person who is imagining that an unwanted part of the self is going to be put into someone else, but it's an interpersonal experience where the other person is pressured to feel that experience and even behave in that way. Uh, this may involve becoming angry, fearful, sad, sexually excited, or happy with no perceptible reason. In a mother-infant relationship or in a patient-therapist relationship, this may result in the infant or patient being relieved of what for them is an unbearable experience of themselves, which the mother or therapist is able to bear, and then return to the patient or the infant in a form more bearable to them. A patient simply witnessing a therapist struggle to contain a painful feeling projected into him without retaliating at the patient or withdrawing or feeling crushed, may be enough to make the experience more bearable for the patient. So PI can be seen as a defense, that is, as an intrapsychic experience and an interpersonal process, like I mentioned. In the context of group psychotherapy, PI can have a significant negative impact uh, if the emotional and interpersonal interactions among the um, members of the group including the therapist, I'm I'm sorry, it should have been on the emotional interpersonal interactions. Awareness of this potential can enable a group to convert what is a disturbing and potentially destructive experience into one involving learning and therapeutic benefit. Knowledge of the concept of PI is useful for understanding regressive phenomena driven by negative uh, and intense affects such as rage. A therapist's awareness of how to identify, understand, and manage PI is crucial for overcoming what could otherwise become an impasse in group therapy, or for that matter, individual therapy. In the session I describe in the book, the therapist became aware of a strong countertransference reaction when a patient became enraged at him. The therapist initially felt quite intimidated and then angry at what he experienced as an unprovoked attack. He needed to contain these feelings and focus on what the patient was experiencing. When the therapist was able to collect himself and managed to ask the patient about what was bothering him, the patient replied much more reflectively. The therapist's feelings of anger and intimidation melted away. He became interested in what the patient was describing of his early experience and felt much empathy for him. One can try to understand the patient's, Pete's anger at his co-patient, Fred, in the group, and at the therapist using the object relations theory I just defined. Pete appeared in a defensive manner to displace his hatred and fear of his neglectful parents and abusive uncle onto Fred. Attacking Fred, instead of being aware of his intense, painful feelings about his parents and uncle, 
In doing so, he projected his unconscious internal images of his hated parents and uncle onto Fred. Pete also appeared to project a helpless, attacked self-image onto both the therapist and Fred, inducing in them the fear and hatred that he once felt towards his parents and uncle. Pete also appeared to project an image of a hated, abusive, neglectful parent onto the therapist, experiencing the latter as mistreating him. He thus elicited in the therapist the fear he experienced in his relationship with his parents and uncle, and also provoked in the therapist hateful feelings towards him, recapitulating his early experiences with his uncle. I hope this gives a flavor of what can transpire in a group, or in individual psychotherapy, and the therapist's need to contain the intense affect being projected into him, reflect on it, and use it to appreciate what the patient is having difficulty containing. The ongoing development of the concept of PI is one of many theoretical and technical advances in psychoanalysis that can be applied in all types of psychotherapy, including individual, couples, family, and group therapy, enabling difficult clinical situations to be negotiated with benefit, and making it possible to treat many patients who could not be effectively treated using older theories and techniques. In the example that you bring up uh, with group therapy, with the example between Pete and Fred, how uh, would a therapist go about um, either communicating uh, her observations to the patients? Like uh, the, the observations that you're talking about, would the idea be for the therapist to kind of guide the patient to an understanding of um, what the therapist thinks might be going on. For example, would the therapist, um, you know, try to, would the therapist explicitly bring up to Pete um, his ideas about uh, how, how um, Pete's um, internal images of his parents are affecting his interactions? Where, where would the therapist go from there after making those observations? Um, I think what you're referring to are different kinds of techniques of intervention, uh, such as clarification and confrontation, and um, as well as interpretation. Um, so I'll give you an example to illustrate these different techniques. The technique of clarification involves exploring with the patient the implications of his statements and questioning what is contradictory, unclear, or incomplete. Clarification is an attempt to bring out additional facts while making more obvious what questions are implied but left unexplained in the patient's information. The limits of the patient's understanding of the problem in question are thereby made more clear. So this is an example of that. Mr. A, a minor executive in a large corporation, presented to his family clinician with vague complaints of anxiety and depressive mood. He complained about management's unfair coercion of the employees taking advantage of them and dismissing them when they did not meet management's unreasonable expectations. He alluded vaguely to fear that he would suffer a similar fate, although he was part of management, but was evasive when asked why or in what way. Clarification led to a hesitant revelation that Mr. A strongly supported the employees behind management's back, meeting with them and even coaching them on how to combat most effectively the management he was expected to represent. Mr. A, although anxious about his activity, believed that management would have no way of finding out about it. 
Now, I'm going to continue uh, this example in a moment, but I wanted to explain that the technique of confrontation, despite the connotation of the term, does not involve an aggressive forcing of unpleasant facts down the patient's throat. Rather, it consists of pointing out to the patient that certain aspects of what he has said appear contradictory or confusing to the interviewer and limit the interviewer's understanding. What the interviewer is questioning, the patient has previously accepted as natural or self-evident, whereas to the interviewer, this acceptance is evidence of defensive not thinking, resulting in an increased Aware, decreased awareness of reality. And I, I could inter- insert here that um, uh, helping a patient to think in more realistic ways and more creative ways is a, is a central aspect of psychodynamic psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. The patient's attention is brought to the incongruity in his thinking, and he is asked to consider in combination material previously kept apart in his mind The defensive not thinking has provided the patient with some relief from anxiety about the implications of the material, but only at the expense of limiting his awareness of reality and his capacity to think of ways to solve the problem. Uh, As well, Mr. A still complained of anxiety in spite of employing this defense. To continue Mr. A's story, confrontation of the potentially self-destructive nature of his behavior combined with confrontation of his denial that management might discover it, led to an open discussion of Mr. A's sympathy for the downtrodden workers with whom he strongly identified in their struggles with management. Mr. A was determined to help them win against management, ignoring the fact that he was exposing himself to the very danger of being fired from which he hoped to protect the employees. Further discussion discovered that this situation reflected a lifelong pattern of sympathy for the underdog, resulting in Mr. A's often missing promotions or being reprimanded for involving himself inappropriately in other people's problems. A more ambitious interpretive psychotherapy would involve exploration of the unconscious bases for this identification, likely likely originating in experiences of feeling helpless and vulnerable in early relationships. This would involve interpretation as a central technique. So I do want to talk about this third technique uh, in psychotherapy, interpretation. It's defined in such a way as to distinguish it from confrontation and clarification. Interpretation is used mainly in psychodynamic and psychoanalytic therapy rather than in more supportive therapies. It is used in attempts to explore the patient's unconscious motivation for thoughts, feelings, impulses, and behavior that distress the patient and or involve the patient in difficulties in his relationships with his environment. Where confrontation may expose the self-destructive nature of a patient's behavior, interpretation attempts to explain it on the basis of a short-term gain for the patient, usually involving the reduction of anxiety about an unconscious conflict. However, the short-term reduction of anxiety usually comes at the cost of long-term interference with optimal functioning because of unconscious limitations in what the patient allows himself to think or feel consciously. To continue Mr. A's story, he described his parents as overbearing and punitive. It wasn't difficult for the psychotherapist he saw in consultation to infer that Mr. A's sympathy for the underdog was based on forgotten memories of being the underdog in his own family. The therapist thought Mr. A's self-destructive behavior was unconsciously motivated by feelings about his parents 
that were influencing his current reactions at work, and that it would be in Mr. A's interest to react to the present reality on its own merits, rather than being influenced unconsciously by previous experiences. In fact, the therapist had the impression that Mr. A was not only reliving his unconscious resentment towards his parents by helping the employees fight the corporate parents, but that this resentment inhibited Mr. A from achieving promotion, which he consciously wanted, because promotion would involve his becoming one of the hated parents, that is, a member of upper management. Both the mistreatment of the employees and the prospect of being a parent in the company made Mr. A intensely anxious. The psychotherapist suggested that Mr. A engage in some psychoanalytic psychotherapy to continue to examine the kinds of situations he got himself into in order to learn more adaptive ways of dealing with this conflict. One outcome was that Mr. A decided that he would be more effective, more, he would more effectively be able to see that justice was done if he were promoted to a more responsible position. He eventually obtained a promotion. Mr. A's increased awareness of his tendency to overreact on the employee's behalf helped him to deal with these situations more constructively. I'm going to try to summarize some of the principles or, or thoughts that I am um, that I you know have gained from your book and, and from our conversation about what psychoanalysis has to offer uh, for mental health. Um, of course, um, probably not all encompassing, but it sounds, I mean, some of the, the main principles that psychoanalytic thinking might bring would be um, a, um, a high degree of uh, observational skills and the, um, the concept of kind of not letting things go if, if a if a patient brings up something important um, not um, not missing the opportunity to to dive deeper on uh, particular concepts that seem important to the therapist and then a willingness of the therapist to participate more in the therapy than one might expect with other forms of psychotherapy so for the therapist to um, engage in interactions with the patient and uh, the therapist's ability to examine her own feelings during during the course of, of the therapy. I think I think those are kind of some of the biggest takeaways I'm I'm getting. Do you, do those sound valid? Do and do you feel am I kind of understanding some of the biggest concepts correctly in your mind? I think that's a good, very brief summary, Alec. I just, I'll just enhance one of the things you said. The first one, I think uh, showing some curiosity and interest in what the patient has taken for granted and not really been interested in, in themselves is uh, such a new experience for the patient that they really may be able to expand their thinking of themselves. This, of course, happens uh, very gradually over a period of years, usually in a, in a long-term psychotherapy, but it's the it's the therapist's capacity to think in ways that the patient hasn't learned to think that it gradually gets transferred to the patient. Dr. Steinberg, you've had um, a busy few years. You've had um, two wonderful books um, come out in in pretty short succession. Um, 
What are you working on now? I do have a third book in mind. Um, as I've said, my first two books are based on my elaborating on papers I had already written after dividing them into one group that I thought would appeal more to physicians and another group that it would appeal more to mental health professionals. Although I also said that there, I think there's much in each book that would be of interest to the other book's target audience. I'm left with a pile of notes, largely clinical, that I've kept since beginning practice over 40 years ago that I've never really looked at, but I have the hope that they could be organized into a third book. I'm thinking of this as a book not only for psychotherapists, but also for patients. I'm hoping that I can share some clinical experiences with therapists that might be helpful for them to read. However, I also hope to acquaint prospective psychotherapy patients with what a psychoanalytic type of therapy has to offer as I believe that patients frequently consult mental health professionals understandably with little or no idea of what is available in terms of mental health care. And given how most mental health professionals are trained, psychoanalysts and psychoanalytically types of psychotherapy may not be considered or mentioned as a possibility. Another way of putting this is that I'm hoping to help the prospective psychotherapy patient become a better informed consultant, um, sorry, consumer. Um, I'm just thinking of a number of my patients who were sent to me, often by family doctors who really didn't know what um, the scope of mental health treatments uh, is and just hoped that I would do something. And the patients had no idea uh, that the kind of psychotherapeutic relationship I was offering might last for a long time and have transformative effects on them. Um, uh, most patients don't know what psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic ther therapy are, and um, it's only by a very gradual introduction to the experience that they become aware that there's more to learn about themselves than they ever imagined. So I'm hoping that, that, that uh, this, this third book I have in mind will maybe jumpstart a few people in that direction. Well, I can't, uh, can't wait to see what you come up with. Um, again, Dr. Steinberg's book, uh, his latest book is, uh, psychoanalytic thought to, uh, excuse me, applying psychoanalytic thought to contemporary mental health practice published by Rutledge, uh, in this year, 2021, Dr. Steinberg, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure, Alec. Thank you.